So as Robin mentioned uh, earlier on, we're carrying on in our studies in the letter uh, to the church in a place called Colossae, letter of Colossians. So I'm going to read from um, chapter 2, verse 20, through until chapter 3, verse 11. Um, But the main focus of uh, this evening will be on chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. But I'll read the extent. So chapter 2, verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and is in all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this evening we come before you in very real awareness of the beauty of your creation. We've enjoyed it today and the absolute majesty of what you have made being very clear to us. Lord, this evening as we come before your word, we ask that you would make just as clear the majesty, the absolutely incredible nature of our God. We love you. I ask this evening that you would give us attentive arts and open minds to what you would have us uh, learn. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, if I were to describe someone to you as having their head in the clouds, I wonder what sort of person comes to mind. Is it someone who is reliable? Is it someone who's of great practical use? If, for example, after this evening's service, you were to overhear someone describing you to someone else, and you heard them use this phrase, he has really got his head in the clouds, would you be best pleased? Well, maybe not. Maybe it makes you think of the daydreaming schoolboy peering out of the window at whatever's going on outside, rather than the studious worker getting on with the job in hand. Maybe it makes you think of the blue sky thinker rather than someone with a firm grip on reality. 
certainly doesn't conjure up thoughts of someone who is solid, who is grounded, does it? Well, in the passage we're going to look at this evening, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, the Apostle Paul tells a group of Christians in a place called Colossae, get your head in the clouds. Now, it may be, as I read through the passage a few moments ago, we immediately thought, well, Paul, that all sounds lovely, but it's all a bit pie in the sky, isn't it? See, it's one of those sections of the Bible that we maybe see quoted on coffee cups, on fridge magnets, on Christian calendars, and if you're American, maybe even on bumper stickers. It's full of lovely ideas. But set your mind on things that are above. Well, it just sounds a bit detached from me, doesn't it? What difference does Colossians 3 verses 1 to 4 make to me in the day-to-day nitty-gritty of life? But when Paul writes these verses, he's not trying to create a bunch of daydreamers. He's not trying to create a bunch of super spiritual mystics detached from reality. But he's actually trying to do the complete opposite of that. He is grounding this group of Christians in the absolute reality of their spiritual standing. That it isn't detached, that it isn't pie in the sky, but that it is sure, it is secure. And why is that important? What effect does that have in the day-to-day? Well, as we see, it's important because the assurance of where we stand as Christians, when we grasp it, starts to shape the way we live out the Christian life. It transforms the way we approach ethics, transforms the way we approach family life and work life and church life and everything we do. The assurance that Paul outlines is the foundation for day-to-day living as Christians, for growing in maturity as Christians. So let's look at the text in a bit more detail. If you have a service sheet uh, with you, um, there are a couple of headings, uh, should be on the inside page, that are going to help, uh, help us focus our thoughts for this evening. So the first one of those, get your head in the clouds for Christian assurance. Over the past few weeks, if you've been with us as we've been studying the letter, we've seen that the church in Colossae was doing quite well. In chapter 2, verse 5, Paul wrote that he was rejoicing to see the church's good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. Paul was happy with how the church was being established. They were firm in their faith. This is a solid group of Christians. But as the church developed, we've seen in our studies that these Christians wanted more. They wanted more of Jesus. They wanted fullness as Christians. And as this desire for fullness arose, there were people in the church who seemed to be offering just that. They were offering a surefire route to the greater, the fullest Christian experience. So, for example, last week, we saw that this included chapter 2, verse 17, people who insisted on sticking to certain Old Testament practices that would make you a fuller and a better Christian. You're not really going to progress as a Christian, they were saying, if you're eating pork pies and if you aren't celebrating the New Moon Festival. And Paul was very clear that the folks who were advocating this had gotten the wrong end of the stick. Chapter 2, verse 17, he said, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That's not the way to Christian maturity, says Paul. These things were just a shadow of the fullness that would be with you in the person of the Lord Jesus. 
And along with those Old Testament religious practices, there were other people who were offering chapter 2, verse 18, special spiritual experiences as the benchmark of Christian fullness. And Paul was clear that the people who were doing this, well, they hadn't just gotten the wrong end of the stick. They picked up the wrong stick altogether. Verse 19, he says these people are puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head. All of that stuff, says Paul, all of these special experiences that are giving you apparent closeness to God, all of it is just serving the ego of the person having the experiences rather than growing the believer and growing the church into real Christian maturity, into Christian fullness. So what do we do then, Paul? These guys are saying that I'm not really growing as a Christian. They're saying I'm not growing the way I should be. They're telling me that they're progressing to the next level and that I'm not. How can I be really sure that I'm not disqualified as a Christian like they're saying I am? See, by the end of chapter 2, Paul's told these Christians where not to look for Christian fullness. Chapter 2, verse 20, if you have died with Christ... Why are you looking to all this stuff, all this shadow religion for Christian fullness? Well, that's great, Paul. It's really helpful to be able to spot this false teaching, but where exactly do we look for fullness? At the beginning of chapter 3, Paul tells them. Look again, the contrast that Paul sets up. Chapter 2, verse 20. If you have died with Christ, what are you doing clinging to all that shadow stuff? Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ... Can you see that logic? If you've died to the shadowy stuff, verses 20 to 23, why are you looking back to it? Chapter 3, verse 1, you've been raised with Christ. Look somewhere else for your Christian fullness, for your Christian experience. So this little section at the beginning of chapter 3 points to Christians in the right direction. What direction is that? Chapter 3, verse 1, seek the things that are above Chapter 3, verse 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, when we read these verses, we may be tempted to think of them as being a bit theoretical, a bit detached. Set your mind on things that are above, by definition, doesn't sound particularly grounded, does it? And in fact, remember that Paul has just been railing against people in the church promoting special spiritual experiences as the way to fullness as a believer. How is this any different from that, setting your mind on things that are above? Well, when we read it closely, to get your head in the clouds or to set your mind on the things that are above doesn't point to a higher level of spiritual experience, a higher level of spiritual achievement, but it points to the facts as they stand. Firstly, a fact about the Lord Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 1. Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And in the light of this fact about Jesus, that he has ascended to be at the right hand of God the Father, facts about the status of these Colossian Christians. Chapter 3, verse 3. You have died. Chapter 3, verse 3. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Chapter 3, verse 4, Christ is your life. Chapter 3, verse 4, you will appear with Christ in glory. Paul isn't offering another brand of super spirituality, another level of spiritual achievement. 
when he says, set your mind on things that are above, he's pointing to what has been achieved by the Lord Jesus. The reality of what above is a sure and a secure thing for these Christians. That as a believer in the Lord Jesus, these Colossian Christians have been united to the Lord Jesus. It's a bit of a refrain that keeps popping itself up throughout the letter, that you are in Jesus, you are united to Jesus. You have died with Jesus in his death on the cross. Chapter 3, verse 3, that old self is dead. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, so you have been raised with him. Chapter 3, verse 1, and you're so tied up with him that your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is your life, chapter 3, verse 3. So, says Paul, it isn't your abiding by these Old Testament rules that make you closer to Jesus, bring you fullness as a Christian. You are united to the Lord Jesus. It isn't visions of worshipping angels that determine your spiritual standing. As a Christian, your life is now bound to the Lord Jesus, hidden with Jesus. When God the Father looks at you as a Christian... He sees the righteousness, the goodness of the Lord Jesus. That's how united you are to him. Well, that's great. But so what? What difference does that make to me? Well, as we come to apply this to ourselves, it might be helpful for us to ask the question, why does Paul need to address this for the Christians in Colossae? Well, one reason is what Paul says at the end of chapter 2. The kinds of teaching that were being offered to the Christians in Colossae, strict adherence to rules and Old Testament regulations, special spiritual experiences, they have an appearance of wisdom. They seem to sound like they could be kind of right. Earlier in chapter 2, he calls them plausible arguments. They don't sound that far-fetched. If I'm really going to progress in a Christian life, if I'm really going to grow as a Christian, if I'm going to experience fullness as a Christian, I need to try this whole angel worship thing. And I need to stop eating bacon. Paul says here, that's that's not right. Be assured, Christian in Colossae, you have been united to Jesus. You have died with him. You've been raised with him. Your life is hidden with him. Do not let your spiritual standing rest on such a shaky peg. And what does this look like for us? How does this translate to us as Chalmers Church? Well, if you're a Christian, I wonder where you find your security. Maybe we find assurance through special spiritual experiences of a different sort. We find our assurance by... Well, the last time we felt particularly close to God during a quiet time. Or, well, singing praise songs, or at a Christian conference or festival of some sort. Now, all those things are good in themselves, but do they determine your Christian spiritual standing? Maybe you find your assurance in how you've been doing this past week. One of the challenges the Colossians faced was... Gauging spiritual standing by how well they've been following sets of rules. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. Now Paul doesn't say that walking in obedience to the Lord Jesus is irrelevant. He doesn't say that living out our faith is old hat. He doesn't say that, well it's just a bit of a free for all now. 
And we're going to see that really keenly in our next point for this evening and actually for the next few weeks. But it is so, so very important that we realize because your status is secure with the Lord Jesus, that none of that stuff, none of the good you do, no rule followed, makes you closer to the Lord Jesus than he has united himself to make you. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a famous Welsh preacher and pastor. He worked in um, Westminster Chapel in London for many, many years. And after services at his church, it was his practice to go back to his vestry or his office and there he would see people who wanted to chat with him about the sermon or if they wanted to pray with him um, or just discuss life with him. And Lloyd-Jones said that he got into the habit of asking a particular question of people who came to see him. And the answer he said, was often quite a revealing one. He would ask very simply, are you a Christian? And he said a really startlingly common response from people was, well, I'm trying to be. Lloyd-Jones would take this as a sign they maybe hadn't quite grasped it, hadn't quite grasped this fact for themselves, that because Jesus died, was buried and raised for them that they too had died being buried and raised to newness of life it isn't a case of trying to be a Christian you believe in the Lord Jesus and what he's accomplished you're united to him so when you start feeling shaky as a Christian that somehow maybe my spiritual standing is reliant on how I've been doing this week or that it's reliant on how long it's been since I got the warm fuzzies during a quiet time or I got the tingles while singing a praise song. Don't let your assurance rest on that shaky peg. Christian, you're a blood-bought child of God. There's no greater assurance, no firmer peg or solid foundation for living out the Christian life than that. So in these verses, Paul offers these Christians assurance. Set your mind on the facts as they stand. Now, if you're not a Christian... I hope this maybe just confronts or challenges any preconceptions you may have had about what it means to be a Christian. That the reality, the fundamental truth of what it means to be a Christian is not just a change in behavior. It's an utter transformation in identity. Now it's really important that we have that clear in our minds before we can look ahead to the rest of the letter. Because see chapter 3 verses 1 to 4 is kind of a hinge passage in the letter. Along with looking back over one shoulder, Paul's looking back over to say that's not where your assurance lies. This is where it lies in the real facts. Paul's also looking forward into his subject for the rest of the letter. And so shall we. Second heading on your service sheets. Get your head in the clouds for Christian living. So I wonder if it slightly jarred against you, the verses that follow our section for this evening. If you have a Bible with you or if you actually have a little insert in your service sheets which have the verses on them, take a quick glance at where they take us. The rest of the book, up until chapter 4 verse 6, deals with practically living the Christian life. Engaging with Christians, engaging with work, engaging with our family life, engaging with the people around us who don't know Jesus. All of this is really practical, nitty gritty, day to day stuff. But when we look at chapter 3, we may have to address a bit of a problem. What is it that makes the moral instruction, 
that falls on for our section for this evening, that put to death the sexual immorality, the idolatry, all that stuff, what makes it different from the rules that Paul's just railed against at the end of chapter 2? Notice how clear he was at the end of chapter 2, verse 23. These, the rules, have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, but are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, he says. These rules might look all right. They have an appearance of wisdom, but they can't stop you from sinning. And then, in chapter 3, verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. Just a few verses later, and Paul seems to be giving us rules. He's just told us that rules in themselves can't stop us from sinning. So it kind of seems as if he's just substituting one set of rules for another set of rules. What's the difference? Well, the answer lies in the verses in between. See, in verses 1 to 4, Paul assures these Christians you have fullness of faith in the risen Lord Jesus in your union with him. And Paul says it is exactly that assurance that is of value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It is setting your mind on the facts as they stand on your union with Jesus that is of value in helping you live the Christian life. Now I wonder if you've ever heard the phrase, he is too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. It's a neat little phrase, isn't it? And it's often used as a bit of a warning to Christians as if becoming really heavenly minded is to make us detached from our purpose here on earth. Uh, I'll confess, I used to really like it as a phrase, got into saying it really regularly for a while. It sounded quite practical and dynamic, the sort of thing that gives you motivation to do God's work here on earth. Um, but then I noticed one particularly obvious problem with it, and his name is Jesus, um, the most heavenly minded man to have ever lived. And yet no one has been of earthly use more than he has. And here for Paul, we see that he says too, it's not that we can be too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. It's the complete opposite of that. Being genuinely heavenly minded, being focused on the facts as they stand, enables us to be of use as Christians. The fact that God has brought him close to himself, that has traction that does have value in helping us live the Christian life. But the question still remains, is Paul being a bit unrealistic? Is he being a bit impractical with what he's telling us? Yes, Paul, we think, I know this stuff about what Jesus has done. I know that I'm united to him. But to be honest, Paul, it's still hard. I still struggle. We still struggle with the things of the flesh. We still struggle with coveting our friend's car, our house, our lifestyle. We still struggle with sexual immorality. We still struggle with all sorts of idolatry, of making everything and anything else our God. What hope is there for us in the Christian life? Because we know this stuff already. We know that we're united to him. We know that we are a new creation. Well, notice that amongst Paul's emphasis on facts, on what has been accomplished by Jesus... He doesn't just leave us to dwell on as a bit of a passive thing. Notice what he actually says. Set your eyes upon the things that are above. Set them. Seek the things that are above. Seek them. It's active. It's imperative. It's a command to do something. Not just to let go and let God 
but to actively set your eyes on the facts of what is above. That's what Paul is saying has traction, has efficacy in stopping the desires of the flesh. I heard someone say this week that Satan is in the identity theft business, aiming to steal away the true identity of the believer, stealing away the knowledge of our union with the Lord Jesus. And it's true. Paul says that to walk in obedience to God in the way we live our lives, to be able to do any of this verse 5 and onward stuff in a way that really has traction, set your eyes on the Lord Jesus, on your union with him, that you are dead. Now I suspect that for many of us who are Christians, the way we may engage with sin in our lives, the way we fight it, is maybe just by exercising the desire not to fail, the desire not to be found out, the desire not to be doing worse than everyone else at church seems to be doing, the desire not to be doing worse than we ourselves think we should be doing. Practically, we're maybe operating at that do not taste, do not touch, do not handle level of Christianity. We've skipped out on chapter 3 verses 1 to 4 to get to Colossians uh, verse 5. And what Paul says is the way that we fight sin in our lives, and it is most certainly a fight, and it is a fight to the death, is to fix our eyes upon the facts as they stand. So what does this mean for you on a Monday morning? When the rubber hits the road, what difference do Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 4 make to me? Well, practically, it means an active and a disciplined shift, a complete reorientation of our thinking every single day for the rest of your life. Not just hoping that we'll stumble into godliness, a deliberate, conscious setting of our eyes on the facts as they stand on the things that are above. So when we wake up in the morning, before we've checked our Twitter feed or our Facebook or our emails on our phone, before we've had a shave, before we even had a cup of coffee, I'm assured that there is such a time, consciously reminding ourselves of who Jesus is, of what he has accomplished by his resurrection and ascension, and who we really are. Stop the identity theft from happening. So it means a resetting first thing in the morning. It means an utter reorientation in those moments when we do face temptation. What is your first thought when you face temptation? We have that, oh, should I or should I not kind of moment. When you find yourself tempted to linger on a lustful or an angry thought. When you face that person at work you really struggle with. When you're looking on to a conversation in the staff room about someone who isn't there and you're tempted just to chip in and have your say. When you find yourself tempted to do something ungodly at work because it just seems to be the way everyone else is doing it. What do we do in those situations? Do we just screw ourselves up and try as hard as we can? Well, yes, it does involve effort. But it first involves setting our eyes on the things that are above, on the reality of the Lord Jesus, you are dead. You want to tempt that old guy? He was so useless we had to kill him. 
I have been raised with the Lord Jesus. I am united to the Lord Jesus. My life is hidden with him. He is my life. I'm a new person now. Now, it's so important that we order these things correctly in our minds. Order these things the way that Paul orders them here. Because as we carry on through the book, as uh, Robin and Andy and others preach through the rest of the book, it's very easy for us to turn the moral imperatives, the put to death, therefore, sexual immorality, impurity, all those things, very easy to turn them into the shadow religion of chapter 2. Make this the basis of your pursuit of godliness. At that moment of temptation, fix your eyes on the facts as they stand. Your old self is dead. Your new self has been raised. You are united to him. Your life is hidden with him. Christ is your life. Let's ask him for his help to do that in this coming week. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and thank you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you um, that he died the death that we deserved. Thank you that he was raised and that as he was raised and as we believed in him, we were brought into new life. We are united to the Lord Jesus. Lord, we ask that we would be helped in making this a daily focus of ours as we wake in the morning, as we face difficulties at work, at home, with friends, that you would confront us of the reality of our new identity as Christians. We are united to the Lord Jesus. Help us to live that out. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen.